Section twelve of White Knights and Other Stories by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Translated from the Russian by Constance Garnett. Part two. Apropos of the wet snow. Chapter four. I had been certain the day before that I should be the first to arrive. But it was not a question of being the first to arrive. Not only were they not there, but I had difficulty in finding our room. The table was not laid, even. What did it mean? After a good many questions I elicited from the waiters that the dinner had been ordered not for five, but for six o'clock. This was confirmed at the buffet, too. I felt really ashamed to go on questioning them. It was only twenty-five minutes past five. If they changed the dinner hour, they ought at least to have let me know. That is what the post is for, and not to have put me in an absurd position in my own eyes and—and even before the waiters. I sat down. The servant began laying the table. I felt even more humiliated when he was present. Toward six o'clock they brought in candles, though there were lamps burning in the room. It had not occurred to the waiter, however, to bring them in at once when I arrived. In the next room two gloomy, angry-looking persons were eating their dinners in silence, at two different tables. There was a great deal of noise, even shouting in a room further away. One could hear the laughter of a crowd of people, and nasty little shrieks in French. There were ladies at the dinner. It was sickening, in fact. I rarely passed more unpleasant moments, so much so that when they did arrive altogether punctually at six I was overjoyed to see them, as though they were my deliverers, and even forgot that it was incumbent upon me to show resentment. Zverkov walked in at the head of them. Evidently he was the leading spirit. He and all of them were laughing. But seeing me, Zverkov drew himself up a little, walked up to me deliberately with a slight, rather jaunty bend from the waist. He shook hands with me in a friendly but not over-friendly fashion, with a sort of circumspect courtesy like that of a general, as though in giving me his hand he were warding off something. I had imagined, on the contrary, that on coming in he would at once break into his habitual thin, shrill laugh and fall to making his insipid jokes and witticisms. I had been preparing for them ever since the previous day, but I had not expected such condescension such high official courtesy. So then he felt himself ineffably superior to me in every respect. If he only meant to insult me by that high official tone, it would not matter, I thought. I could pay him back for it one way or another. But what if, in reality, without the least desire to be offensive, that sheep's head had a notion in earnest that he was superior to me, and could only look at me in a patronizing way? The very supposition made me gasp. "'I was surprised to hear of your desire to join us,' he began, lisping and drawling, which was something new. "'You and I seem to have seen nothing of one another. You fight shy of us. You shouldn't. We are not such terrible people as you think. Well, anyway, I am glad to renew our acquaintance.' And he turned carelessly to put down his hat on the window. "'Have you been waiting long?' Trudyabov inquired. I arrived at five o'clock, as you told me yesterday," I answered aloud with an irritability that threatened an explosion. 
"'Didn't you let him know that we had changed the hour?' said Trudyubov to Simonov. "'No, I didn't. I forgot,' the latter replied, with no sign of regret. And without even apologizing to me, he went off to order the hors d'oeuvres. "'So you've been here a whole hour!' "'Oh, poor fellow!' Zverkov cried ironically, for to his notions this was bound to be extremely funny. That rascal for Fitchkin followed with his nasty little snigger like a puppy yapping. My position struck him, too, as exquisitely ludicrous and embarrassing. "'It isn't funny at all!' I cried to Ferfitchkin, more and more irritated. "'It wasn't my fault, but other people's. They neglected to let me know. It was—it was—it was simply absurd!' "'It's not only absurd, but something else as well,' muttered Trudyubov, naively taking my part. "'You are not hard enough upon it. It was simply rudeness, unintentional, of course. And how could Simonov—hm!' "'If a trick like that had been played on me,' observed Ferfitchkin, "'I should—but you should have ordered something for yourself,' Zverkov interrupted, "'or simply asked for dinner without waiting for us.' "'You will allow that I might have done that without your permission,' I rapped out. "'If I waited, it was—' "'Let us sit down, gentlemen,' cried Simonov, coming in. "'Everything is ready. I can answer for the champagne. It is capitally frozen. You see, I did not know your address, where I was to look for you.' He suddenly turned to me, but again he seemed to avoid looking at me. Evidently he had something against me. It must have been what happened yesterday. All sat down. I did the same. It was a round table. Trudyubov was on my left, Simonov on my right. Zverkov was sitting opposite, Ferfitchkin next to him, between him and Trudyubov. "'Tell me, are you in a government office?' Zverkov went on, attending to me. Seeing that I was embarrassed, he seriously thought that he ought to be friendly to me, and, so to speak, cheer me up. "'Does he want me to throw a bottle at his head?' I thought, in a fury. In my novel surroundings I was unnaturally ready to be irritated. "'In the N office,' I answered jerkily, with my eyes on my plate. "'And have you a good berth? I say, what made you leave your original job?' "'What made me was that I wanted to leave my original job,' I drawled more than he, hardly able to control myself. Ferfitchkin went off into a guffaw. Simonov looked at me ironically. Trudyubov left off eating and began looking at me with curiosity. Zverkov winced, but he tried not to notice it. And the remuneration? What remuneration? I mean, your salary. Why are you cross-examining me? However, I told him at once what my salary was. I turned horribly red. It is not very handsome, Zverkov observed majestically. "'Yes, you can't afford to dine at cafés on that,' Ferfitchkin added insolently. "'To my thinking it's very poor,' Trudyubov observed gravely. "'And how thin you have grown! How you have changed!' added Zverkov, with a shade of venom in his voice, scanning me in my attire with a sort of insolent compassion. "'Oh, spare his blushes!' cried Ferfitchkin, sniggering. "'My dear sir, allow me to tell you that I am not blushing,' I broke out at last. "'Do you hear?' I am dining here, at this café, at my own expense, not at other people's. Note that, Mr. Ferfitchkin. What? Isn't everyone here dining at his own expense? You would seem to be— Ferfitchkin flew out at me, turning as red as a lobster, and looking me in the face with fury. That, I answered, feeling I had gone too far. 
and I imagine it would be better to talk of something more intelligent. You intend to show off your intelligence, I suppose. Don't disturb yourself. That would be quite out of place here. Why are you clacking away like that, my good sir, eh? Have you gone out of your wits in your office? Enough, gentlemen, enough, Zverkov cried, authoritatively. How stupid it is, muttered Simonov. It really is stupid. We have met here, a company of friends, for a farewell dinner to a comrade, and you carry on an altercation, said Trudyubov, rudely addressing himself to me alone. You invited yourself to join us, so don't disturb the general harmony. Enough, enough, cried Zverkov. Give over, gentlemen, it's out of place. Better let me tell you how I nearly got married the day before yesterday. And then followed a burlesque narrative of how this gentleman had almost been married two days before. There was not a word about the marriage, however, but the story was adorned with generals, colonels, and camera-junkers, while Zverkov almost took the lead among them. It was greeted with approving laughter, for Fitchkin positively squealed. No one paid any attention to me, and I sat crushed and humiliated. "'Good heavens! These are not the people for me,' I thought and what a fool I have made of myself before them! I let Ferfitchkin go too far, though. The brutes imagine they are doing me an honour in letting me sit down with them. They don't understand that it's an honour to them and not to me. I've grown thinner. My clothes—oh, damn my trousers! Zverkov noticed the yellow stain on the knee as soon as he came in. But what's the use? I must get up at once, this very minute, take my hat and simply go without a word. With contempt! and to-morrow I can send a challenge. The scoundrels, as though I cared about the seven roubles, they may think—damn it! I don't care about the seven roubles. I'll go this minute." Of course I remained. I drank sherry and Lafitte by the glassful in my discomfiture. Being unaccustomed to it, I was quickly affected. My annoyance increased as the wine went to my head. I longed all at once to insult them all in a most flagrant manner and then go away. To seize the moment, and show what I could do, so that they would say, he's clever, though he is absurd, and—and—in fact, damn them all!" I scanned them all insolently with my drowsy eyes, but they seemed to have forgotten me altogether. They were noisy, vociferous, cheerful. Zverkov was talking all the time. I began listening. Zverkov was talking of some exuberant lady whom he had at last led on to declaring her love—of course he was lying like a horse—and how he had been helped in this affair by an intimate friend of his, a Prince Koya, an officer in the Hussars, who had three thousand serfs. "'And yet this Koya, who has three thousand serfs, has not put in an appearance here to-night to see you off,' I cut in suddenly. For a minute every one was silent. You are drunk already." Trudyubov deigned to notice me at last, glancing contemptuously in my direction. Zverkov, without a word, examined me as though I were an insect. I dropped my eyes. Simonov made haste to fill up the glasses with champagne. Trudyubov raised his glass, as did every one else but me. "'Your health and good luck on the journey,' he cried to Zverkov. "'To old times, to our future, hurrah!' They all tossed off their glasses and crowded around Zverkov to kiss him. I did not move. My full glass stood untouched before me. 
"'Why, aren't you going to drink it?' roared Trudolyubov, losing patience and turning menacingly to me. "'I want to make a speech separately on my own account, and then I'll drink it, Mr. Trudolyubov.' "'Spiteful brute!' muttered Simonov. I drew myself up in my chair and feverishly seized my glass, prepared for something extraordinary, though I did not know myself precisely what I was going to say. "'Silence!' cried Forfitchkin. "'Now for a display of wit!' Zverkov waited very gravely, knowing what was coming. "'Mr. Lieutenant Zverkov,' I began, "'let me tell you that I hate phrases, phrase-mongers, and men in corsets. That's the first point, and there is a second one to follow it.' There was a general stir. "'The second point is, I hate ribaldry, and ribald talkers, especially ribald talkers. The third point, I love justice, truth, and honesty.' I went on almost mechanically, for I was beginning to shiver with horror myself, and had no idea how I came to be talking like this. I love thought, Monsieur Zverkov. I love true comradeship, on an equal footing, and not—hm—I love—but, however, why not? I will drink your health, too, Mr. Zverkov. Seduce the Circassian girls, shoot the enemies of the fatherland, and—and—to your health, Monsieur Zverkov. Zverkov got up from his seat, bowed to me, and said, "'I am very much obliged to you.' He was frightfully offended, and turned pale. "'Damn the fellow!' roared Trudolyubov, bringing his fist down on the table. "'Well, he wants a punch in the face for that,' squealed Forfitchkin. "'We ought to turn him out,' muttered Simonov. "'Not a word, gentlemen, not a movement,' cried Zverkov, solemnly checking the general indignation. I thank you all, but I can show him for myself how much value I attach to his words. Mr. Forfitchkin, you will give me satisfaction to-morrow for your words just now," I said aloud, turning with dignity to Forfitchkin. A duel, you mean? Certainly, he answered. But probably I was so ridiculous as I challenged him, and it was so out of keeping with my appearance, that every one, including Forfitchkin, was prostrate with laughter. "'Yes, let him alone, of course. He is quite drunk,' Trudolyubov said with disgust. "'I shall never forgive myself for letting him join us,' Simonov muttered again. "'Now is the time to throw a bottle at their heads,' I thought to myself. I picked up the bottle, and filled my glass. "'No, I'd better sit on to the end,' I went on thinking. "'You would be pleased, my friends, if I went away. Nothing will induce me to go. I'll go on sitting here and drinking to the end, on purpose, as a sign that I don't think you of the slightest consequence. I will go on sitting and drinking because this is a public house, and I paid my entrance money. I'll sit here and drink, for I look upon you as so many pawns, as inanimate pawns. I'll sit here and drink, and sing if I want to. Yes, sing, for I have the right to, to sing. Hm. But I did not sing. I simply tried not to look at any of them. I assumed most unconcerned attitudes, and waited with impatience for them to speak first. But, alas, they did not address me. And, oh, how I wished, how I wished at that moment to be reconciled to them! It struck eight, at last nine. They moved from the table to the sofa. Zverkov stretched himself on a lounge, and put one foot on a round table. Wine was brought there. He did, as a fact, order three bottles on his own account. I, of course, was not invited to join them. They all sat around him on the sofa. They listened to him, almost with reverence. It was evident that they were fond of him. "'What for?' 
What for? I wondered. From time to time they were moved to drunken enthusiasm and kissed each other. They talked of the Caucasus, of the nature of true passion, of snug berths in the service, of the income of an hussar called Podarchevsky, whom none of them knew personally, and rejoiced in the largeness of it, of the extraordinary grace and beauty of a Princess D., whom none of them had ever seen. Then it came to Shakespeare's being immortal. I smiled contemptuously, and walked up and down the other side of the room, opposite the sofa, from the table to the stove and back again. I tried my very utmost to show them that I could do without them, and yet I purposely made a noise with my boots thumping with my heels. But it was all in vain. They paid no attention. I had the patience to walk up and down in front of them from eight o'clock till eleven, in the same place, from the table to the stove and back again. I walk up and down to please myself, and no one can prevent me. The waiter who came into the room stopped from time to time to look at me. I was somewhat giddy from turning round so often. At moments it seemed to me that I was in delirium. During those three hours I was three times soaked with sweat and dry again. At times, with an intense acute pang, I was stabbed to the heart by the thought that ten years, twenty years, forty years would pass and that even in forty years I would remember with loathing and humiliation those filthiest, most ludicrous, and most awful moments of my life. No one could have gone out of his way to degrade himself more shamelessly, and I fully realized it—fully, and yet I went on pacing up and down from the table to the stove. Oh, if you only knew what thoughts and feelings I am capable of, how cultured I am, I thought at moments, mentally addressing the sofa on which my enemies were sitting. But my enemies behaved as though I were not in the room. Once, only once, they turned towards me, just when Zverkov was talking about Shakespeare, and I suddenly gave a contemptuous laugh. I laughed in such an affected and disgusting way that they all at once broke off their conversation, and silently and gravely for two minutes watched me walking up and down from the table to the stove, taking no notice of them. But nothing came of it. They said nothing, and two minutes later they ceased to notice me again. It struck eleven. "'Friends!' cried Zverkov, getting up from the sofa. "'Let us all be off now. There!' "'Of course, of course,' the others assented. I turned sharply to Zverkov. I was so harassed, so exhausted, that I would have cut my throat to put an end to it. I was in a fever, my hair soaked with perspiration, stuck to my forehead and temples. Zverkov, I beg your pardon, I said abruptly and resolutely. Ferfitchkin, yours too, and every one's, every one's. I have insulted you all. Aha! A duel is not in your line, old man, Ferfitchkin hissed venomously. It sent a sharp pang to my heart. No, it's not the duel I'm afraid of, Ferfitchkin. I am ready to fight you to-morrow after we are reconciled. I insist upon it, in fact, and you cannot refuse. I want to show you that I am not afraid of a duel. You shall fire first, and I shall fire into the air." "'He is comforting himself,' said Simonov. "'He's simply raving,' said Trudyubov. "'But let us pass. Why are you barring our way?' "'What do you want?' Zverkov answered disdainfully. They were all flushed. Their eyes were bright. They had been drinking heavily. "'I ask for your friendship, Zverkov. I insulted you, but—insulted? You insulted me?' Understand, sir, that you never under any circumstances could possibly insult me. And that's enough for you. Out of the way," concluded Trudyubov. 
"'Olympia is mine, friends, that's agreed,' cried Zverkov. "'We won't dispute your right, we won't dispute your right,' the others answered, laughing. I stood as though spat upon. The party went noisily out of the room. Trudyubov struck up some stupid song. Simonov remained behind for a moment to tip the waiters. I suddenly went up to him. "'Simonov, give me six roubles,' I said with desperate resolution. He looked at me in extreme amazement, with vacant eyes. He too was drunk. "'You don't mean you are coming with us?' "'Yes.' "'I've no money,' he snapped out, and with a scornful laugh he went out of the room. I clutched at his overcoat. It was a nightmare. "'Simonov, I saw you had money. Why do you refuse me? And I a scoundrel? Beware of refusing me. If you knew, if you knew why I am asking, my whole future, my whole plans depend upon it. Simonov pulled out the money and almost flung it at me. Take it, if you have no sense of shame, he pronounced pitilessly, and ran to overtake them. I was left for a moment alone. Disorder, the remains of dinner, a broken wine-glass on the floor, spilt wine, cigarette ends, fumes of drink and delirium in my brain, an agonizing misery in my heart, and finally the waiter, who had seen and heard all and was looking inquisitively into my face. "'I am going there,' I cried. "'Either they shall all go down on their knees to beg for my friendship, or I will give Zverkov a slap in the face.'" End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 "'So this is it at last. Contact with real life,' I muttered, as I ran headlong downstairs. "'This is very different from the Pope's leaving Rome and going to Brazil. Very different from the ball on Lake Como.' "'You are a scoundrel,' a thought flashed through my mind, if you laugh at this now. "'No matter,' I cried, answering myself. "'Now everything is lost.' There was no trace to be seen of them, but that made no difference. I knew where they had gone. At the steps was standing a solitary night sledge-driver, in a rough peasant coat, powdered over with the still-falling wet and, as it were, warm snow. It was hot and steamy. The little shaggy piebald horse was also covered with snow and coughing. I remember that very well. I made a rush for the roughly made sledge, but as soon as I raised my foot to get into it, the recollection of how Simonov had just given me six roubles seemed to double me up, and I tumbled into the sledge like a sack. "'No, I must do a great deal to make up for all that,' I cried. "'But I will make up for it, or perish on the spot this very night. Start!' We set off. There was a perfect whirl in my head. They won't go down on their knees to beg for my friendship. That is a mirage. Cheap mirage, revolting, romantic, and fantastical. That's another ball on Lake Como. And so I am bound to slap Zverkov's face. It is my duty to. And so it is settled. I am flying to give him a slap in the face. Hurry up! The driver tugged at the reins. As soon as I go in, I'll give it him. Ought I, before giving him the slap, to say a few words by way of preface? No. I'll simply go in and give it him. They will all be sitting in the drawing-room, and he with Olympia on the sofa. That damned Olympia! She laughed at my looks on one occasion and refused me. I'll pull Olympia's hair, pull Zverkov's ears—no, better one ear, and pull him by it round the room. Maybe they will all begin beating me, and will kick me out. That's most likely, indeed. No matter. Anyway, I shall first slap him. The initiative will be mine, and by the laws of honour that is everything. 
he will be branded and cannot wipe off the slap by any blows, by nothing but a duel. He will be forced to fight. And let them beat me now. Let them, the ungrateful wretches. Trudolyubov will beat me hardest, he is so strong. Profitchkin will be sure to catch hold sideways and tug at my hair. But no matter, no matter. That's what I am going for. The blockheads will be forced at last to see the tragedy of it all. When they drag me to the door I shall call out to them that in reality they are not worth my little finger. "'Get on, driver, get on!' I cried to the driver. He started and flicked his whip. I shouted so savagely. "'We shall fight at daybreak. That's a settled thing. I've done with the office. Ferfitchkin made a joke about it just now. But where can I get pistols?' "'Nonsense. I'll get my salary in advance and buy them. And powder. And bullets. That's the second's business. And how can it all be done by daybreak? And where am I to get a second? I have no friends." "'Nonsense!' I cried, lashing myself up more and more. "'It's of no consequence. The first person I meet in the street is bound to be my second, just as he would be bound to pull a drowning man out of water. The most eccentric things may happen. Even if I were to ask the director himself to be my second to-morrow, he would be bound to consent, if only from a feeling of chivalry, and to keep the secret. Anton, Antonitch. The fact is that at that very minute the disgusting absurdity of my plan and the other side of the question was clearer and more vivid to my imagination than it could be to any one on earth. But— "'Get on, driver! Get on, you rascal! Get on!' "'Ugh, sir,' said the son of toil. Cold shivers suddenly ran down me. "'Wouldn't it be better—to go straight home?' My God, my God, why did I invite myself to this dinner yesterday? But no, it's impossible, and my walking up and down for three hours from the table to the stove? No, they, they, and no one else must pay for my walking up and down. They must wipe out this dishonor. Drive on. And what if they give me into custody? They won't dare. They'll be afraid of the scandal. And what if Zverkov is so contemptuous that he refuses to fight a duel? He is sure to. But in that case I'll show them. I will turn up at the posting-station when he is setting off to-morrow. I'll catch him by the leg. I'll pull off his coat when he gets into the carriage. I'll get my teeth into his hand. I'll bite him. See what lengths you can drive a desperate man to. He may hit me on the head, and they may belabor me from behind. I will shout to the assembled multitude, Look at this young puppy who is driving off to captivate the Circassian girls after letting me spit in his face. Of course, after that everything will be over. The office will have vanished off the face of the earth. I shall be arrested. I shall be tried. I shall be dismissed from the service, thrown in prison, sent to Siberia. Never mind. In fifteen years, when they let me out of prison, I will trudge off to him a beggar in rags. I shall find him in some provincial town. He will be married and happy. He will have a grown-up daughter. I shall say to him, Look, monster, at my hollow cheeks and my rags. I've lost everything—my career, my happiness, art, science, the woman I loved, and all through you. Here are pistols. I have come to discharge my pistol, and—and I—forgive you. Then I shall fire into the air, and he will hear nothing more of me." I was actually on the point of tears, though I knew perfectly well, at that moment, that all this was out of Pushkin's Silvio and Lermontov's masquerade. And all at once I felt horribly ashamed, so ashamed that I stopped the horse, got out of the sledge, 
and stood still in the snow in the middle of the street. The driver gazed at me, sighing and astonished. What was I to do? I could not go on there. It was evidently stupid, and I could not leave things as they were, because that would seem as though—heavens! How could I leave things? And after such insults! No! I cried, throwing myself into the sledge again. It is ordained. It is fate. Drive on! Drive on! And in my impatience I punched the sledge-driver on the back of the neck. What are you up to? What are you hitting me for? the peasant shouted. But he whipped up his nag so that it began kicking. The wet snow was falling in big flakes. I unbuttoned myself, regardless of it. I forgot everything else, for I had finally decided on the slap, and felt with horror that it was going to happen now at once, and that no force could stop it. The deserted street lamps gleamed sullenly in the snowy darkness like torches at a funeral. The snow drifted under my greatcoat, under my coat, under my cravat, and melted there. I did not wrap myself up. All was lost anyway. At last we arrived. I jumped out, almost unconscious, ran up the steps, and began knocking and kicking at the door. I felt fearfully weak, particularly in my legs and my knees. The door was opened quickly, as though they knew I was coming. As a fact, Simonov had warned them that perhaps another gentleman would arrive, and this was a place in which one had to give notice and to observe certain precautions. It was one of those millinery establishments, which were abolished by the police a good time ago. By day it was really a shop, but at night, if one had an introduction, one might visit it for other purposes. I walked rapidly through the dark shop into the familiar drawing-room, where there was only one candle burning, and stood still in amazement. There was no one there. "'Where are they?' I asked somebody. But by now, of course, they had separated. Before me was standing a person with a stupid smile, the madam herself, who had seen me before. A minute later a door opened, and another person came in. Taking no notice of anything, I strode about the room, and I believe I talked to myself. I felt as though I had been saved from death and was conscious of this joyfully all over. I should have given that slap. I should certainly, certainly have given it. But now they were not here, and everything had vanished and changed. I looked around. I could not realize my condition yet. I looked mechanically at the girl who had come in, and had a glimpse of a fresh, young, rather pale face, with straight, dark eyebrows, and with grave, as it were, wondering eyes that attracted me at once. I should have hated her if she had been smiling. I began looking at her more intently, and, as it were, with effort. I had not fully collected my thoughts. There was something simple and good-natured in her face, but something strangely grave. I am sure that this stood in her way here and no one of those fools had noticed her. She could not, however, have been called a beauty, though she was tall, strong-looking, and well-built. She was very simply dressed. Something loathsome stirred within me. I went straight up to her. I chanced to look into the glass. My harassed face struck me as revolting in the extreme. Pale, angry, abject, with disheveled hair. No matter. I am glad of it, I thought. I am glad that I shall seem repulsive to her. I like that. End of chapter 5 Recording by Bill Borst